be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. So far we read in the inspired words of Scripture this morning. Now let's turn together to consider the instruction of Lord's Day 9 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Now we're entering into the actual content of the Apostles' Creed, which we've been introduced to in the previous two Lord's Days. But question 26 asks, What believest thou when thou sayest, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, that the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who of nothing made heaven and earth with all that is in them, who likewise upholds and governs the same by his eternal counsel and providence, is for the sake of Christ his Son, my God and my Father, on whom I rely so entirely that I have no doubt but he will provide me with all things necessary for soul and body, and further that he will make whatever evils he sends upon me in this valley of tears turn out to my advantage, for he is able to do it, being Almighty God, and willing, being a faithful Father. Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, I do not know if there has ever been such an attack on love and the concept of love as we are seeing in our own time and our own place. Now you wouldn't think so by listening to the chatter of our world and the slogans. A bystander looking into our culture might say this is a society awash in love. Everybody seems to want to talk about love. And yet these are the results of the love that the world talks about. Millions of children violently dismembered in their mother's womb. Thousands of young people deceived about their gender and mutilated beyond repair. Untold lives wrecked in the aftermath of thousands upon thousands of divorces. So much callous destruction right out in the open, all in the name of love. It's enough to make us turn up our noses just when we hear that word. If this is love, then no thank you. Love has become like a code word to justify every form of depravity you can think of. But it would be a mistaken overreaction to everything we see going on out there if we were to throw love out the window 
And that's for one very simple and very important reason. The God whom we say we believe in as Christians is a God who says of himself in 1 John 4 verse 8 that he is love. God is love. Which means that love has an incredibly high place in the worldview of a Christian. God is at the center of everything that we know. God is the being who created us and who created all things around us with his sovereign and almighty power. God is the object of our worship. He is the being who gives us meaning and purpose in our lives. And that God, according to his own self-revelation, says that he is love. Only not the kind of love that we see out there in the world. That love that the world speaks of is a counterfeit, and that's evident from the chaos and destruction it unleashes. The love that is God, in contrast from the false love of this world, is love of a father. But not just the love of any father. It's the eternal and abiding love of God, the Father. So let's consider together this morning the Father, God the Father, and believing in the Father's love. First, we will notice that this love of the Father is first. In other words, it comes to us before we ever return it. Secondly, this love that comes to us from the Father is reliable. We can rest in that love. And secondly, this love that comes from the Father is perfected. That is, it is perfected in his children. And God loves us. That enables us truly to love him and our brothers and sisters. Believing in the Father's love, first love that is first, second love that is reliable, third love that is perfected. Our confession here in the Apostles' Creed is, I believe in God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. So that brings up the question, what do we mean when we speak of a father? What is a father? Well, a father is a person who loves. Very simply, a father is a person who loves. Now, even as I say that, I understand that there is such a thing as a father who does not love his children. That's a painful reality for many people. It may not even be that their father hits them or yells at them or abandons them as such. It may just be that he's never satisfied with them, that he's never really present in their lives, that he makes it clear when he disciplines them that he's not doing this because he wants them to thrive and to flourish and to know the difference between right and wrong, but he's doing it really in anger. It's clear to the children of this man that the man whom they call father really only loves one person, and it's not them. Such men have the name of a father, it's true, and their children must honor them for this reason. God says that, honor thy father and thy mother. But fathers like that aren't really fulfilling the function of what a father is according to God's design. It's like finding a drinking fountain on a hot day when you're parched and then you press the button and it's dry and you're left there 
still thirsty. A father who is a father indeed is a person who loves his children. And he loves his children in such a way that his children know it. Now those children might grumble at their father's rules and they might complain when their father gives them chores to do, but they know that this man whom they call father would not hesitate to run into a burning building to pull them out if they were in trouble. And they know that at the end of the day they're going to have a place at his table and he's going to work by the sweat of his brow to make sure that there's something on that table for them to eat. And they even know, these children, in their heart of hearts, that when he corrects them, that usually he's right. This love of a father for his children is the kind of love that's so basic and so foundational that it's easy to take for granted because it's always there. Now that's a good part of what ought to be in our mind when we think of God the Father. Now we confess that God is our Father every time we recite the Apostles' Creed and there's a lot that goes into this confession of God as our Father. What does God do as God the Father? Well, the first answer to that question is He begets a Son, an eternal Son, giving life and existence to a divine person other than Himself in eternity. The Father begets the Son, but He does more than that. As the Father... He created the world out of nothing. He gives life and existence, not just to His eternal Son, but also to birds and fish and trees. He gives color to the roses and warmth and energy to the sun. He gives personality and rationality and reason to human beings whom He originally made in His image. As the Father, He gives direction to His creation, guiding it in all things and upholding it by His arm. As the Father, He opens His hand to provide every good thing for all of His creatures who depend upon Him. This is all an expression of the fatherhood of God. His creation of the world and His upholding and governing of the world in His providence. So, the Catechism says, when we say, I believe in God the Father, we're saying this, that the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is the same person who of nothing made heaven and earth with all that is in them, who likewise upholds and governs the same by His eternal counsel and providence. And you can look at all of that and we understand that this is who God is and this is an expression of His fatherhood. He creates, He upholds, He sustains. But you also have to ask the question behind all of this, why? Why? Why does God open His hand to the baby birds of the sparrow in their nest of grass to provide them with every good thing? Why does God continue to uphold and sustain the universe so that it does not collapse back into nothingness? Why did He give life and being to the world in the first place? If He is an eternal God, then He was perfectly at rest and perfectly blessed without any creation at all. Why did He create something rather than nothing? Why does He continue on and on in this eternal relationship of begetting His Son? Why does He do that? Think about what that means. An eternal relationship of begetting. 
an eternal relationship of giving life and sustaining life in another person. If you dads and moms get tired out and worn out by bringing forth children and raising them for the few years that you have them, what does it mean to be in a relationship of begetting and bringing forth of a son that always was and always is and always will be? Constant giving of self. Why does he do that? Why does God do that? And the answer is love. The love of a father. Which is why John says those words in verse 8. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In verse 16, And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. That's the explanation as to why there is something rather than nothing. That's the explanation as to why there is an eternal Son who is begotten out of this Father. Love. This love of God the Father, then, by virtue of what it is, must always be first. Is first. And primary. So let's go back into that eternal triune life of God. I know when we talk about the Trinity... We're talking about something that is a bit mysterious to us, especially if we go back into the eternal life that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had before all worlds were created. We're entering into something that we have to be careful there. But let's go back there, where we find there is nothing created as yet. There is no grass, no birds, no oceans, no mountains, no people, no angels, Nothing but God who exists forever in all of His fullness as God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there, in that eternal being of God that existed before there was the world, we find a Son. This Son, who is there in that eternal life of God, one day will enter into time and space. He will take on flesh. He will become the man the real human man whom we know as our Lord Jesus Christ, who is also very God. But already there, He's there in eternity. And where did He come from? What is His origin, that Son? Well, the answer to that question is He always was there and He always will be there. He is the eternal Son of His Father, He is a divine person, and yet it is also true that this Son came from somewhere. He, He has origins from somewhere. Now, you and I have origins from our parents, which means that there was a person, a father and a mother, that lived 20 or 30 years before we ever came into being, and then they got married and they had children and that's how we came into the world. They were there, they existed first and then some years went by and then we came into being. And we understand that. That's very logical. It's not like that between God the Father and God the Son. There is no time between these two persons. There is not a time when the Father was without His Son or the Son was without His Father. 
And yet the Son is begotten of the Father. That's what the Word of God says. That's Jesus' self-designation. I am the only begotten Son of God. And to be begotten means to come from somewhere. And to beget means to bring someone forth. The Son is begotten of the Father who brings Him forth in this eternal relationship of begetting that's mysterious to us. We're talking about God here. It ought to be mysterious to us. But even here in this eternal relationship between Father and Son, there's something primary about the Father's love. The Son is begotten and brought forth out of the love of His Father. And then that love of the Father is returned to Him from His Son through the Spirit. What's that telling us about God and His nature? And what's that telling us about the Father? Well, it's telling us that we must think of God as a deep well of love. Eternal love. Eternally deep and infinitely wide. That's the love of God. A love that brings forth another divine person. The Son. A love that is for someone other than Himself. A love that gives life. A love that gives being and existence and personhood. That's the love of the Father, whom our Belgic Confession calls the cause, origin, and beginning of all things visible and invisible. Already back there, in the deep of eternity, there's something primary, something first, about the Father's love as He brings forth His Son. But now, Let's leave eternity behind us and let's move forward to the beginning of time. And let's ask that question. Why is there something rather than nothing? Why are there billions of lights winking back at us when we look up at the sky on a clear night? Why is there a planet Earth? A planet so precisely and exactly calibrated that it is capable of sustaining and supporting human life that could not exist unless the conditions were exactly right as they are. And why is there so much beauty in this earth and in this universe in which we live? So much life and goodness. So much so that when we find out that this world is actually cursed, And there is death and disappointment that that hurts so much because we understand that that's not the way it's supposed to be. But why is there something rather than nothing? Did the creation simply spring into being of its own accord? Was there a big explosion billions of years ago, a big explosion that gave rise to all matter and energy? Did it just happen that the right molecules and atoms happened to be in the right place at the right time under the exact circumstances so that dead matter became living matter somehow? And then this little cell that somehow spontaneously emerged out of the chaotic soup created more cells and developed into complex life until we see all the diversity of life that we see in the world today. Is that how it happened? 
And then did things like love and wonder and beauty simply emerge as byproducts of this otherwise completely random and chaotic process? A sort of cosmic accident that is interesting to observe in a scientific and detached way, but really is of no consequence. That's how many look at it today. They say the creation is first. Matter, energy, that's first. Living creatures and then human beings, that's first. And then these human beings came up with the idea of love and probably came up with this idea of love simply as some sort of mechanic to draw them together in their human society so that they could survive because the survival of the fittest is the predominant way of thinking about all of these things. And you look at all of that and you can say, okay, maybe there's a certain outward sense to that, but how empty. How meaningless. How void of anything that is of any consequence. And how contrary to what our intuition tells us about things like love. Much less what the Bible tells us. No, first, before there is a creation, before there is any human being, there is the love of the Father. A love that exists eternally. A love that has its first object in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who is before all things. But a love that goes back, or rather goes to work, to bring forth the creature and to call into being the things that be not as though they were that lays the foundations of reality as we know it and experience. For God so loved the world, John says. God so loved the world, and we're not afraid of that at all. Yes, God so loved the world. He loves it. He loves His creation. Loves it with all of its intricacy, all of its depth, all of its life. With the eternal love of a Father, that's why it exists. Apart from this love that is in the Father, there would be no heavens and there would be no earth. Apart from this love that is in the Father, there would be no air to breathe. There would be no fish to swim in the ocean. There would be no trees. There would be no oxygen. First, there was the love of the Father. And then, there was the heavens and the earth and all things that we see in the heavens and the earth. And if that's true of God's relationship with His creation his creation, which he loves and which one day he will redeem. It's also true of his relationship with you and with me who believe in him. The Father's love is first and is foundational in our relationship to him. It's a love that was there before you or I were ever conscious of it or aware of it at all. It's a love that saw this poor, pathetic Sinner, connected to the line of Adam, set for destruction, wandering around in darkness. And it's a love that seeing and knowing all of these things about us went to work, setting in motion long before we ever existed, 
events and realities that would work out for our salvation, working through the line of Abraham who lived thousands of years ago, and then Judah and David, and in the womb of the Virgin Mary, guiding the decrees of emperors and the the decisions of judges and politicians, even working through the sinful and unbelieving hearts of wicked men, all so that this child would be born who would bear in his flesh the burden of our sins and would take our judgment to the cross to deal with it once and for all. Herein is love, John says. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And that's true on a deeply personal level. It's not this, beloved. It's not that God says, I will love you if only you will accept my love for you of your free will. It's not that God says, you can know my love if only you will open up your heart to me first. God does not say, you love me first and then I will make you know my love. No. It's the Father's love who is first. And that love of the Father is foundational. So much so that John says the only reason we love Him or love anybody else is because He first loved us. And that explains why this love of the Father is so reliable. Which brings us to our second point. This is the confession that the Lord's Day puts in our mouths. Now when you confess the Apostles' Creed, you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And now question and answer 26 is explaining what that means. So when you make that confession in the Apostles' Creed, this is what you are saying, the substance of what you are saying according to the Heidelberg Catechism that the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who of nothing made heaven and earth with all that is in them, who likewise upholds and governs the same by his eternal counsel and providence, is, for the sake of Christ his Son, my God and my Father, on whom I rely so entirely that I have no doubt but he will provide me with all things necessary for soul and body, and further that he will make whatever evils he sends upon me in this valley of tears turn out to my advantage." He is reliable, on whom I rely so entirely. He's reliable. That's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing that we tend to take for granted. When you have someone in your life who is reliable, it's easy to forget what a blessing that is. If you have a mother and a father who love you and are always there, if you have a spouse who is faithful, who is always there, if you have an employee who does a good job, you can give any job to him and he'll go and do it and he'll come back and report that the job is done. 
It's easy to take a person like that for granted, a reliable person. It's when you don't have reliable people in your life that you realize what a blessing that is. When you can't take for granted that your employee will do his job, so you always have to follow him around and check up on him and maybe hold his hand. Or when your marriage becomes troubled because there was infidelity and betrayal. Or when your family is blown apart because dad or mom has left. People in relationships like that wish that they had someone they could rely on. And human beings, even at their best, are inherently unreliable. They make mistakes, they commit oversights, they sin and they fail. But God the Father is reliable. He's reliable. His love is reliable. His love is a constant, a constant that will never be removed, never taken from His children. It's always there. He is always there and always there in all of His goodness as the eternally good God and as the Father of His children. He's reliable. That's amazingly comforting. In light of everything that we have to face in life as Christians, that is amazingly comforting. The Lord's Day mentions that we have needs. Needs in body and soul. Great needs. Needs so great that we will perish if these needs are not fulfilled. Needs for food and drink. Needs for rest and shelter. Needs for work. Something to do with our hands. Companionship. We have needs for our souls. The need for hope. The need for spiritual gifts. For courage. For strength. For forgiveness. Some of these needs, because they are so visceral, so important to us, if we think about them too much and we wonder, how is it going to be that I have these needs supplied? Where is my bread going to come tomorrow or the day after that? How am I going to find strength and courage to persevere a week from now or three weeks from now? We can get all stressed out. Some of us maybe lie awake at night in our beds wondering about these things, thinking about tomorrow. And we can't provide any of these things ourselves. We're dependent on the Creator and the Sustainer of the universe. We have needs. And then there are specific troubles that sometimes enter our lives. It's one thing to have those needs and to wonder how they will be fulfilled in the future. It's another thing to be lacking something right here, right now, in the present. To wake up one morning with symptoms that turn out on further examination to be cancer in the body. To spend day after day in the hospital because you have a chronic condition. That's never going to go away. You just have to live with it. To live every day with a burden of trauma. Intense suffering of the soul due to some past event. There are evils. Evils that we face in our life. And they are evils. The Lord's Day calls them that. Speaks of whatever evils He may send upon me in this valley of tears. They're evils. It's evil when the human body breaks down due to illness or affliction. It's an evil when a man 
or a woman, a father or mother is bereaved of their children. It's an evil because it's a part of the curse of this world in which we live. It's not the way it's supposed to be. We have needs. We have troubles. We feel these things. How important it is to have someone we can rely upon as we walk through this valley of tears. I hear us saying this kind of thing all the time in the church. When we think about these things that we have to bear, these troubles of life and even facing the end of our life, we ask the question, how, how does somebody do that if they don't have God? How does somebody face this relentless burden of all of these needs and all of these troubles that can happen to us and ultimately the fact that this life is going to end? How can somebody face death if life to them is nothing more than an accident? There's nothing reliable for a person like that to hold on to. All there is is this constantly changing environment that we live in that is not only changing but degenerating. But this is what you confess, beloved, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. I rely on Him. I rely on Him. On my Father. I rely on Him so entirely that I have no doubt, no doubt, that He will provide all of my needs in body and soul. And that even when those evils do happen to me, when I am afflicted with some illness, when I am coming to the end of my life, when I am standing by the graveside, He will cause whatever evils He sends upon me in this valley of tears so that they work out for my good and salvation. I rely on Him. There's two reasons why you can make that confession according to the Lord's day. The first is because God our Father is able to do it, being Almighty God. In other words, he's not just any father. Even the best of human fathers eventually can't help us anymore. They help us for a time. They bring us into this world through an act of begetting. And then they give us a house to live in. They make sure there's food on the table. They help us for a time. But even the best of fathers eventually get old and they die. And even when we have them, there's only so far their arm can reach. As a little child, we might think, wow, that's a really strong arm that dad has. But eventually we realize there's only so far that arm can reach. There's only so many things our father can do. But God the Father is almighty. He's sovereign. He's the king. There's nothing that takes place outside of his knowledge and outside of his influence that makes him reliable. He's not going to wear out. His wisdom is not going to become outdated. His strength is not going to fade. He will always be what He always has been. Almighty God, who of nothing made heaven and earth and all that is in them. And therefore, He's able. He's able. He's able to make sure that there's bread on your table. He's able to make sure that there are clothes on your back. He's able to make sure that you have all the things that you need. He is Almighty God. But secondly, we can make this confession that we rely on him because as the Lord's Day says, he's also willing. And in many ways, that's the more important reason. 
It's not just that he's able to do these things. But he wants to do them. He wants to ensure that you have food on your table and clothes on your back. He wants to help you with your doubts and your fears. He wants to glorify you. He wants to give you his heavenly home. He's willing. He wants to do these things. And that brings us back to his love, beloved. His love. His love specifically as our Father. His love that comes first. Don't you know that that's exactly why His love is so constant and so reliable? Exactly because it comes first. Exactly because it comes regardless of anything we say or anything we do or anything we think. That's why it's so reliable because it is the love of a Father. It's the kind of love that a father feels. Many of you are fathers. It's the kind of love that a father feels when he's holding his own child for the first time and he's looking in that child's face and he's saying, I'm going to take care of you, child. I'm going to love you all the days that I have strength to do it. I'm going to show you the world. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to be a father to you. Now that little baby doesn't know anything about it. He blinks and coos, doesn't understand. But that love of the father is first, seeks out that child, promises and does what a father does. And gradually, yes, that child begins to understand, grows into it and loves his father back. But the father's love is first. It comes from his will. And we could never really know that God loves us, beloved, if it was any other way. We could never really know that He wills to be our Father if it was our responsibility to cooperate with Him and to find our place in His family. His love has to come first. Then we know. Then we know it's the love of a Father. And that it's reliable. And that certainty and assurance of his love is what enables our own love as his children to be perfected. And that brings us to the final point this morning. Notice, we've been talking a lot about the Father's love for us. John also speaks of the love that we must have for the Father. And yes, we must love our Father. This is what our life is for. This is what gives meaning and purpose to our life. This is the great commandment that Jesus said to us. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. In fact, if you don't love God, you don't really know God. That's what he says in verse 8. If you don't love, you don't know God, for God is love. And more than loving God or saying that we love God, this is how we love our Father, by loving one another. He says that in verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. And in fact, if you say that you love God, but you hate your brother, you are being exposed by your hatred as a liar. Verse 20, for he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? 
Love. This is the calling of God on our lives. Love God. Love your neighbor. Lay down your life for your brother. We ought to. We must. We're bound to. But that's one of those things that's easy for me to say. It's easy for me to call us to this morning. But if we've meditated on these things deeply and sought to practice them in our own lives, we'll realize there's always this obstacle that we run into, isn't there? Fear. Fear. We hold back from loving the brother. Why? Because I'm afraid. I'm afraid that my love is not going to be received by him. I'm afraid that I'm going to become the object of his scorn and ridicule. I'm afraid that I'm going to screw it up. Fear. Fear even that maybe God can't really love me. That even God can't really be my father because doesn't he know the things that I've done? Doesn't he know the things that I've said? The things that I've thought? The things that I've done with my hands? I haven't loved him. I haven't believed in him with the fervency and devotion that I see in other people. I haven't given myself over to him. I haven't laid down my life for him as I know I should. And then there's fear. Fear of judgment. Fear that has torment. Torment in our soul that brings us down to despair. And the effect of that on us practically is this. We don't lift a finger. When you're paralyzed by fear, you don't do anything. You don't seek. You don't try to do good. Because you're afraid. That makes love incomplete. Maybe you have feelings of love in here, but it never gets out because you're too afraid to do it. And that's why our confession here in Lord's Day 9 is so important. This is the answer to that fear. The answer to our fear is not to probe deeper and deeper into that fear and to psychoanalyze ourselves. All that does is promote more and more doubt. The answer to fear is to know the love of God. To know the constancy of that love. To know the sovereignty of that love. To know that that love is unconditional. There's no strings attached to it. It was there for us before we ever sought it out. And it comes to us even though we are wretched and sinful, full of doubts and full of imperfect love, and yet He loves us anyway. There's no two faces in God. Just pure, unadulterated, unconditional, gracious, fatherly love. You need to know that. And when you know that and when you are convinced of that, when you rely upon it, that's the answer to your fears. That's what's going to remove any inhibitions you have that prevents you from seeking out in love your neighbor, your brother, so that you don't love him. It keeps you secure in the Father's love so that you can face even the scorn and rejection of your neighbor. His love, which is always first, perfects the love that is in us by casting out fear. Beloved, you have a Father. 
You have a father. He loves you. Oh, what love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. He loves you. Believe in that love. Rely upon that love. And then love him. Love him with the love of children who have no fear because they are the sons and daughters of their father who they know without a shadow of a doubt loves them. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank thee for thy love. And what can we say to that? What can we say that would be adequate to express the gratitude and the joy that we have knowing the love, not just of a father, but of a father who is in heaven, a father who is also the creator of all things visible and invisible, and the eternal father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We praise thee and we worship thee, and we pray that thou would strengthen our faith, that we may cast out fear, and that love may be perfected in us, and that we may live out our faith by loving one another, loving the brother who is right in front of us, whom we have seen, and loving thee in that way. Forgive us, O Father, when we have failed, when we have sinned, and walk with us that we may be perfect in thy love. In Jesus' name we pray.